I started to take my writing seriously in 2012, as it was only after a few short courses, an MA, and the discovery of an amazingly talented group of friends with the same ambition, I found the confidence to do so. Ever since then, the words have flowed, and then, just over a year and a half ago, they stopped. People who suffer from anxiety suffer from it in different ways. When it hit me, my first reaction was one of control, desperate to keep it secret and pretend it wasn't happening. I compartmentalised my life, throwing all my energy into one area, namely work, and isolating myself from others. The first symptom of this was that I stopped writing. The second, growing unhappiness and crippling feelings of self-doubt and worthlessness. But mainly, anxiety feels like there's a rubber band around your chest, and every day it gets a little bit tighter and then tighter until you feel you can't breathe at all. Writing's not for me, I'd say. I can't do it. And this destructive rhetoric bed in. I stopped contributing to writing groups, put the novel I was writing down, and I slipped away. A few months ago, I gave myself a very firm talking to. Stop this, you can do it. I had to snap the band. So I decided to start writing again. I started slowly, revisiting old description exercises and then short stories, rewriting, editing, and copy editing. I asked if I could come back to a writing group, and I was welcomed by friends with open arms. Soon, the words started to come back, and then everything else started to lift. So I share Will Not Way with you today. It's the first piece I rewrote after I decided to to tackle my anxiety. It's not the most polished, but it will always be golden to me, as each word is lined with the determination it took to give myself a very firm and much-needed new beginning. So here it is. Three chimes, and I'm back in the sitting room on that old faded armchair. It's the only piece of furniture that's not covered up in dust sheets, and so I sit here, listening to the clock on the wall. All other sound is greedily muffled by the sheets or sucked away, but I still listen for anything, faint laughter or birdsong, that sharp trilling which used to flood in through the window when my brother Tom and I were children. But here there's nothing, just the slow ticks from the clock, and I'm stuck here alone. And then it happens. The cuckoo clock echoes out across the vacuum. Its chipped beak pushes through, launching a full-blown invasion. I jump up and decide to walk around the house one last time. Along the corridor, light magnolia patches scar the walls, mourning the generations of faces previously there. My favourite was always the portrait of James, my mother's brother, smiling and leaning against the church wall at Hedzer. Like her, James had lived here in his childhood. Tom and I hadn't known James. He had died on the beaches of Dunkirk years years before either of us were on the scene, but still an intimacy grew between us, born through our hero worship interpretation of what our uncle would have been like and enriched by the image she had painted through stories. Apple bobbing at Halloween, the stolen victory in the village cross-country race and that time she'd locked him in the cellar with the frogs, it all wove into the personality that I chose for him and which Tom had happily adopted. Our James was larger than life, leading our childhood adventures. But even as a child, I wasn't naive. I knew she only lent him to us occasionally. With my mother now gone, and my younger brother also unfairly unfairly taken a few years before her, James has also finally escaped me, and I feel like I can't breathe. I walk into the day room and throw back the curtains. A glint by the mantelpiece catches my eye. There's a picture frame peeking out under a sheet. I pick it up and wipe the dust away, revealing my mother with each streak of my finger. She sits before me laughing, and here she's so young, her hair's done up in rolls. Her laughter rings through the house, and I hear her sing, It's the tops, darling, just you wait and see. And then, just as quickly, the silence comes back, and she's lost again. 
My heart bursts. I run towards the music room. I've ignored it since she died, but now, right now, I have to be with her piano. I push open the door into the dark, closed room and rush to open the window to the garden. I close my eyes at first, waiting for the dust to settle before slowly reopening them to adjust to, a light, to the light. The room comes into focus and the shock hits. It's worse than I feared. Nothing here has been touched. All of my mother's photographs, her posters, my brother's first press releases from the classical tours at Cambridge, it's all still up on the walls. My cousins were meant to have taken it down in kindness, packing it safely away until I could face it. I slumped down onto the worn red leather piano stool and let my fingers run over the ivory keys. I've no intention of playing, but my hands act of their own accord. First come the scales and the arpeggios drummed into me from the age of four. Next, the exam pieces learnt diligently by heart. Grades fall away and my mother's back beside me, as delighted as she had been 40 years before, clapping in time. That's a demi, not a semi-quaver, darling. Do keep up. My fingers stumble as the tears fall into the dust on the baby grand's black enamel. The removal men are coming for the piano in a few hours. I know that by letting it go, the legacy of my mother will continue, her love of music passing on to another family. Keeping it is too painful because of Tom, because it's just me and the piano left when my younger brother ought to be here too. By getting rid of it, I'll be able to put both their ghosts to rest. I replace the cover over the piano keys and turn to the memorabilia on the walls. It takes ages to remove each image and piece of print she painstakingly placed there. Strangers invading this space and seeing her private and personal things is unthinkable, so I bundle them up in my handbag, knowing that I will put them in a drawer as soon as I get home and probably never look at them again. I pick up the forgotten photographing and look at my mother's image and cradle it close to my heart. This is the one thing I won't take with me, the photograph I never knew existed. She belongs here, so I place the frame on top of the piano and leave. I shut the front door and post my mother's keys through the letterbox. At the end of her front pass, I remember the open window in the music room and my feet slow. Shall I go back? The door's not far away, but I don't have keys and I'd have to call someone to let me back in. I turn back away from the house. After all, it doesn't really matter. The removal men are due soon with the estate agent and we're in the back end of Bucks. So I walk away and past the fence that backs onto my mother's garden. Chopin floats into the summer breeze. A load lifts off my shoulders. It's only at the end of the road, just when I'm about to leave my mother's street, will not weigh for the last time, that I realise something's wrong. My handbag's empty.